Today on Backroom Politics, just when you thought Syria couldn't get even more confusing, well, it just did. Russia's now involved. That means everything is saved. Not really. Hey, Congress is back in session today. What could they possibly do with everything on their plate that could be even remotely thought of as effective? We'll talk about that. We'll go into detail about the Russian deal being put in front of us on Syria with our special guest, Dr. Ralph Winnie. That tell me a story today on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is the Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. Hello, Justin. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing well. And to my 12 o'clock today, he is the former floor chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hi, Justin. Good to be here. And to my 1 o'clock, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who served at last count under four presidents. He is longtime Senate staff for longtime Washington Insider and a very handsome fellow from the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Justin, how are you? I'm doing fantastic. And to my right, he is the former Executive Director of the Democratic Party of the Great State of Maryland. He's longtime Washington Insider, Carl Thuban. Hello, Carl. Hello, Justin. And joining us remotely from... The great city of New Orleans, the Big Easy. She is the former general counsel for the Homeland Security Committee under Benny Thompson. Former Obama appointee is general counsel to the Maritime Administration. She is the Honorable Denise Krepp. Hi, Denise. Hey, Justin. How are you? Good to have you on from New Orleans. Hey, we have got so much to get to. We're going to start off, obviously, with what everybody is talking about, the developing story on Syria. Syria has now become even more complex, even more confusing than we even thought it could be last week when we brought up this subject. Well, here is the latest. We're going to go over from what happened last week till this week. Last week when we got went off the air, we were almost certain that we were going to have a vote, uh, a thumbs-up vote, both in the House and in the Senate, giving the president the authority that he technically already had under the War, uh, War Powers Act to go ahead and initiate military action against the Assad government in Syria for using chemical weapons in warfare. Since that has happened, there has been lots of wrangling. The French have committed their military support to uh, any um, American military action in the region, as have the Germans, as have several Middle Eastern allies as supporting military action in Syria. And yet, the Russians and the Chinese come in. The Chinese have been relatively unheard of up to date right now, however, the uh, 
the, the Russians have put together a proposal, which we'll talk about shortly. However, earlier today, the UN Security Council had called a meeting for 4 o'clock, an emergency Security Council meeting at 4 o'clock. CNN is now reporting breaking news out of New York that the UN Security Council meeting has been canceled, which was due to talk about the Syrian question as a result of the latest proposal coming out of Syria. Now, just when you think things couldn't get even more complex, let's talk about the Russian question. The Russians have put forward a, a proposal that would prevent the U.S. from initializing military action in the region should the Assad government uh, agree to turn over all chemical weapons stockpiles to an international body. Obviously, we're talking about the U.N. and U.N. peacekeeping forces. That has been put forward by President Putin. President Obama this morning said that he would strongly consider it but was still skeptical about the proposal. And now... It's turned into a quagmire. We now have the president who earlier today briefed the Senate, both Senate Republicans and Senate uh, Democrats, during a lunch meeting today. Both caucuses are now involved with the briefing on the Russian plan. And the House is pretty much following suit. There is strong, strong dissension in both parties for military action. First, let's get to the big question right now. Uh, Bob Hines. This time last week, we were almost certain that by now we would have seen Tomahawk missile launches coming off of the five U.S. warships that we have in the region and striking the Assad regime in retaliation for the use of chemical weapons. That has not as to yet happened. What happened? Well, um, I think it was on, uh, am I right, on Sunday when the uh, when Mr. Um, um, or Senator uh, Kerry, who is the Secretary of State, was leaving the uh, Group 20 uh, meeting in uh, St. Petersburg, I believe. Um, he was asked a question by, in, by you know, in a, in a news conference with a number of other people, and he was asked about, is there anything that would stop the United States from launching an attack? And I'm going to paraphrase it, but I'm pretty close to quoting him. I said, he said, sure, if if President Assad would uh, turn over all his chemical weapons to an international body, uh, <clears throat> then maybe something, you know, then we could, uh, then we would, have, we wouldn't do it. We wouldn't need to do it if he would give up all his chemical weapons and put him under international control. Uh, on the way home, on the plane, he got a call from the Soviet foreign minister, his colleague, uh, who said, "You got a good idea there, uh, John," and. Uh, uh, we want to talk about that. And uh, so then it kind of steamrolled, and then now Assad has announced that he is uh, willing to uh, work with, work on that plan. And so uh, it suddenly seems as though the United States uh, may well be standing down, uh, and it may, it may well be that we won't be voting uh, either in the House or the Senate on going to, uh, on doing and supporting any attack. And right now things are in sort of a, uh, a flux. Well, going Alan Moore, when we look at, at, at what's transacted since last week when we went off the air, uh, there's been a definitive almost flip-flop coming out of the administration as far as their take on Syria, even a little bit of a chink in the armor prior to the Russian proposal set out this morning by President Putin. Why is the Obama administration having such a difficult time 
finding solid ground to stand on when they were the ones who put the red line in the sand, per se. Well, we talked about this last week. Uh, you'll recall that Al and I were in agreement that we couldn't quite understand why the president suddenly shifted gears now 10 days ago when he undercut, apparently, uh, his secretary of state by saying, we're going to throw this out to the Congress. And Al and I were saying, why would you want 515 generals to be part of your team? Is that really a good idea? Uh, and, and we were fiddling with that for a couple of days, and that, that was something we talked about last week, as the president was off to the G20 in St. Petersburg, and there were a host of side conversations with some of the other leaders, a number of whom said, we agree that some kind of action has to be taken. There was a brief conversations, apparently, we, we don't know all in detail, between the president and, uh, and president, uh, between our president and President Putin, um, and we came back from that expecting that the president was now going to fully engage and try to persuade both the people and the Congress that this was a good idea, uh, and reserving the right to not follow what the Congress said if he so chose. And then, as Bob described, there was this exchange that uh, that occurred. Actually, I think I think uh, Secretary of State Kerry was in London when he said this uh, on last Friday, um, and then had these conversations with the foreign minister who who said we we may have an announcement. And by the time Kerry had landed back in the states, um, the Russians had tossed this idea out, um, which went beyond what Kerry had said. All he said was, let's. Uh, let's put these under the leadership of an international force, but of course they won't do that. The next thing we know, a couple of hours, a few hours later, literally, um, the Russians have said, we think that they should put the, the weapons under an international force, move towards destroying them, and then have Syria join the International Convention Against Chemical Weapons. It's one of only eight countries that never signed on, on. To, to, to that convention. And, and, and then today, and then yesterday, the president in an interview said, this is worth looking at. We're, you know, we don't, they don't have a great track record of living up to what they say they might do, but we're certainly not going to walk away from this. The, 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 uh, the Secretary General of the UN said, oh my gosh, here's an, an opening and an opportunity. And the, 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 the Congress has said, we're going to postpone voting on the resolution of just a few days ago because events are changing so fast. And today, just today, Syria said, we accept. Well, accept what exactly? That, these details have to be sure. And then, and then just to finish it off, the White House was, was saying, two different people said, well, see, the threat of force brings people around, which, which – it is a, a laugh. It, it is a laugh. Let's just acknowledge that. But, but Denise Crap, you know, we, we saw basically your, your former colleagues in the House coming out and saying, look, we're behind the president. We stand behind the use of force. We believe military action and a surgical strike is appropriate. Uh, yet as the Russian deal started coming out and leaking, the both sides, uh, Republican and Democrat, all came out saying, "What? Well, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. We were never really in favor of uh, full-scale uh, universal uh, military aggression against Syria. 
even Congress is flip-flopping on this one, Denise. Well, just I, I don't think Congress is flip-flopping. You know, if you look at uh, Tulsa Gabbard, she came out and said she didn't support it. You had my former boss, Benny Thompson, saying he didn't support it. You have others in the Republican Party saying they didn't support it. It's not flip-flopping. It's you know, people reacting as they get additional information. But I think people have established very firm positions. The question is going to be whether or not those that have established these firm positions are willing to modify their positions based off of the additional information. But Congressman Al, you, you served eight terms in Congress. Have you seen anything like this where Congress, number one, we talked about last week, where Congress is being consulted on powers that the president normally has under the War Powers Act as commander-in-chief, but also Congress driving foreign policy, not the White House and not the Secretary of State. Uh, in the first part of it, uh, I think we agreed, Alan and I at least agreed uh, last week, that uh, it was a very strange thing for the president to do, and uh, we wouldn't have done it. Uh, he, he should have taken action and moved. The idea of drawing a red line and then standing around uh, and sitting on your thumb uh, is, is not very dignified and is not very helpful. <clears throat> As to the other part, uh, I, I, Congress can't decide whether the sun should come up in the east. I just I just don't have any confidence that uh, that they are going to unsnarl this the snarl that uh, is very difficult for the State Department, the President, White House, whatever they're doing to do, the Congress isn't going to help. Look, but Congressman Al, going off of uh, Alan's original analogy of having 535 generals, we now have 535 secretaries of state weighing in on, I'm sorry, we, we have 535 secretaries of state now driving foggy bottom policy. That's the reason that the, the President shouldn't uh, Bounced it up to them. Denise Krebs, looking at this, I mean, going off of what Congressman Al said, they can't even agree what they're going to have for lunch in the caucus luncheons, let alone trying to drive uh, foreign policy. Is this too much of a handful for Congress to deal with, especially with everything else they've got going on after recess? Absolutely. I mean, we're weeks away from not having a budget, and that's what everybody thought they were going to be working on when they came back in September. So if you're going to ask them to work on a budget, to work on the farm bill, and to work on whether or not we go to war, that's crazy talk. People can't, Congress does not have the ability to do all three things, and they're struggling with the ability to do just one of those. Carl Tuman. Uh First of all, I, I think you know, the fact that uh, you are laughing at the that the uh, White House was saying pressure did this. Pressure could have had something to do with it. The other thing is, is that Russia might not have been wanted to be put in the situation where if we attacked Syria, what would they do at that point? And 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 would they unleash Iran? Would they, whatever? But you know, and, and the third third thing is, this gives time for the UN report to come out, which I think is very important here. Uh, and we don't know, I mean, you, know, you had a meeting at four, I was supposed to have a meeting that started at four o'clock, Russians pulled out. 
Well, we don't know. We don't know what what canceled. We don't know what canceled. That was on the line. We we don't know what canceled the Security Council. Anyway, it 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 didn't happen. So how the thing is how how much can you trust Russia? How much can you trust Putin? We know we can't trust Assad. I mean, Alan Moore. I'm reminded of something that that Margaret Thatcher once said. She said, if you have to say to people that you're a lady, then you're not one. Um, and, I, and, I, and I bring that up because this business of the White House completely caught unexpected and off guard by what the Russians had done, trying to save some face. Oh, we made that happen. Maybe they had some influence. Who knows? But trying to claim credit is, is I think, an embarrassment for them, and it doesn't help them in trying to make use of a potential opening that, 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 that let's face it, the Russians have created. Now, what's in it for the Russians? I'll tell you what's, <laughs> what I think is in it for the Russians. I think that just today that they cut a deal with the Syrians to ramp up the shipment of conventional weapons. They still want Assad to prevail, they were getting increasingly isolated on this overwhelming evidence that chemical weapons were used, and Putin was sitting with 19 other world leaders in St. Petersburg, and no one was taking the Russian position. They were all trying to find a way to work together to slow down and re- uh, the, the use of chemical weapons and reduce the threat of them and the prolifer- proliferation of them, but no one was was doing what Putin was doing, which was saying, show me the evidence, show me the evidence. So it seems to, I mean, Putin is a clever guy. He's got himself into a really interesting position here. And he is, is, is both supporting Syria while trying to help get rid of chemical weapons. Bob Hines, the president tonight is supposed to give a televised address at 8 o'clock nationwide. Uh, all networks have signed on. What possibly the president tell the American people today to give them more, uh, I don't know, establish his credibility or give, him, or give the American electorate more confidence in his ability to truly handle this situation? I think what Alan said is what he will allude to. The fact that we were taking a strong position we were prepared to uh, attack, uh, in some degree, some of this, some of this uh, military facilities in Syria, uh, and uh, Russia didn't want their friend to get too hurt. So Russia and when when Russia uh, and uh, Syria had the opening from Mr. Uh, uh, Mr. Kerry, the Secretary of State. Uh, they took it immediately, and uh, they did it primarily because, you know, we can say because our guy gave them a chance to be reasonable, and they took it, and that's a plus for everybody because nobody's fighting. I think I think Alan is correct. They they he's going to have to say, you know, it's because we were firm, and we said we'd do it that uh, they have to. Uh, they are now. Asking them to work this out. Denise Krep, can the president reestablish credibility both on the international front and with the American electorate tonight? Justin, this isn't about establishing credibility, it's about shoring up his position. His ability to establish credibility about this war is going to take longer. Not necessarily the war, but our 
uh, involvement in Syria. And, and I say that because I've done a lot of traveling over the past week to Texas and Louisiana, and folks keep coming up to me and saying, why are we doing this? What is, why is this a U.S. national interest? And he's going to have to answer that question, too. Why does this matter to folks in Louisiana? Why does it matter to folks in Texas? How will it impact them? You know, what is the direct cost to them if we do not act? Congressman now, it seems to me that we are, and, and it's only natural as things are happening, are concentrating so much on the, 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 the give and take that's going on within the last few hours and the last few days. The fact is, a week ago, we described a situation that was almost impossible for the administration in the United States to work their way out of. And as was just mentioned a moment ago, uh, Russia had some problems with with letting this thing fester and what have you. And for that matter, so in Syria. <clears throat> this, whether it's good policy or not, we can discuss separately, but in terms of getting everybody off of a hot seat, I think this is a very uh, good opportunity for the president to say all he wants to about you can't trust the Russians, which is true, but it gives an opportunity for him to move away from what is going to be a very unpopular military strike. It frees up the Russians who don't want to have to choose between uh, a rock and a hard place if we do attack Syria, which is one of their allies, and it uh, and it kind of serves uh, Syria's problem as well. <clears throat> I think this may be looked back on as an opportunity where everybody kind of ducked the bullet and we move on to a situation that is more manageable than what we had when we sat here last week. Alan Moore. Yeah, I think that that the the key thing tonight for the president is <laughs> on the fly rewriting the speech the, that he was going to give just yesterday and then the, which was a rewrite from the day before um, he will dis I expect him to describe the case for doing something and then give a, a little news report here's what's happened in the last 24 hours that has changed the landscape um, this Congress has stepped back from the resolution that we were that, that they had planned to, to proceed with. The UN Security Council is now engaged, canceled meeting notwithstanding. Um, the UN is now involved here, and over the next few days, let's see if we can get a deal that will take these weapons out of the hands of people who've shown a willingness to use them um, and get them destroyed. And so. He's not going to be asking. I think it's going to be more an explanation rather than a than an appeal for support that he had written as of yesterday. Bob Hines. I would agree with everything that's been said about what the president may say, and I, I want to add one thing to it. I think he should raise a caution that the Russians uh, are very close friends of, of Assad and uh, want to support him. And uh, while we uh, want to uh, want to work with them and 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 get the UN behind us, trying to you know find all the weapons and and either destroy them or get them under international control, but we have to be very cautious and uh, we have to recognize that they have interests that are not our interests, and uh, we have to make sure that we will make we have to be sure that the uh, agreements of getting 
the weapons under international control are firm, complete, and 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 open, so everybody knows. And, and that may be the most important thing he can say because if he says all of that and then things go sour, he could always say, look, I said I, tr I wanted to trust them, but I wanted to verify it, and it hasn't turned out. But Bob, I said, well, that's all fine and good, but what we have here now is, is a situation where our commander-in-chief hasn't exactly exuded the confidence to the American people that he's got the capability to command uh, by giving up his his ability to act under the War Powers Act, he did not utilize that. By going to Congress for both guidance on military use and on foreign policy, he did not do that. At some point, are the American people truly waiting for a, a, a an evaluation of what's going on versus, hey, we need to see a strong president, we need to see a strong leader, that's what we need? Well, first of all, he hasn't given up his right to do anything he wants to do under the under the War Powers Act. He is for he has not foreclosed that. All he has said was, let right now I think he's gonna say, let's trust but verify in effect. Let's make sure that what we're talking about is a is a step down on everybody's part and a cleanup of the weapon system is let's see if we can make that happen. Carl Tuvin. I caught a little squib a couple of days ago on, on uh, the radio where where it said that the president had dinner with Putin in, in at the G20, and <clears throat> but nothing came out of that. That, that not, nothing reportedly came out of that uh, uh, dinner as to information. Now, what we don't know is if I'm sure Syria was discussed. I'm sure chemical weapons were discussed, among other things. But what we don't know is if it went any further than that. And 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 at least it hopefully it established uh, a relationship there, which might lead to something in the future. But Denise Krep, tonight as as we look towards the president's address tonight, uh, he's in a really precarious situation right now. Whereas the international community is looking at him and his address tonight to say, look, show us the leadership as the head of state of arguably what was the number one superpower in the world, one would question, hey, Russia now has got the upper hand. What could he possibly say to the American people from your view that he could possibly go forward with? You know, I, don't, I don't think Russia well, has it's going to be difficult. I mean, we've gone through Iraq, we've gone through Afghanistan. Um, people have died, people have been wounded. And what he's going to have to say to them is, look, there's a possibility we may be going into a third conflict, but the reason we're going into this third conflict is to make sure that we don't go into a fourth conflict and a fifth conflict that may be started by somebody else who looks at what's going on here and says, hey, if the Americans don't act now, then they're not going to act if I do something in my own country. And so that, that can bring it home because nobody wants to see their children go to war. And, and so it's going to be in people's best interest to make sure that we preclude ourselves from going to war and we take the necessary steps that are needed to make sure that, you know, we do what we have to do. Yeah, and you can have to be very empathetic. Yeah, but Denise, one of the biggest hawks on this situation has been Nancy Pelosi. I mean, there seems to be conflict inside the Democratic Party. If any 
sector of Congress was going to be dovish on the situation. Surprise, surprise, it would have been surprise. it would have been that side coming from the liberal side of the Democratic Party led by Nancy Pelosi. How can there be credibility on both sides with Nancy Pelosi saying we've got to act? Yeah, we haven't heard from Nancy Pelosi today. You've got to, go ahead. Okay. You've got quite the uh, the split. You have Nancy Pelosi saying go in, but you have Tulsi Gabbard, who is an Iraq and Afghanistan veteran, saying don't go in. And, and she was, you know, it's obviously got more of an expertise in this area than Nancy Pelosi. So we have a, quite the divide in the Democratic Party, and I think we're going to continue to have that divide as we go throughout this entire process. Congressman Al. The point is that circumstances have changed, and everybody had a position. We all had positions around this table a week ago, which I suspect have changed because the situation has changed. And I think it lets a lot of people uh, back away from uh, situations they really didn't want to do. I don't think the president really wanted to, 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 to bomb. The, the, the one thing I want to comment on, though, is it, it, it seems, at least in the international community, and the folks I've talked to here in D.C., familiar with the situation, we've got a Pentagon and senior leadership at the Pentagon saying this is not a good idea. But we have a chairman testifying, a chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, testifying in front of Congress saying, yeah, this could possibly work. He was never 100% in favor of this. My point exactly. However, however, in the, inter- in the eyes of the international community, where the leadership role, the sheriff's role, is traditionally looked to from the United States, we've lost that almost and given way to Vladimir Putin. I totally <laughs> disagree with Why? it. Why? <laughs> because we're now in a position to take leadership at not starting a third major conflict in Syria. After after the president after the president has already drawn a line in the sand saying this or that. Justin, Justin Alan Moore. Justin. As Al said circumstances have changed. This is a major game change over the last 48, 72 hours. Anybody who can't react to change is a complete rigid idiot. Earlier, there was a conversation, you talked about flip-flopping. Well, in order to flip, to flop, you have to flip in the first place, and a majority of members of both houses had not yet decided. It was, a, it was about 22 members in both houses who said, yes, go in. The game changed, and everybody has the right then to, re- to, to respond to that. To suggest that we've given up the policeman sheriff's role, which is something that we reluctantly accept and don't love and don't do a fabulous job of, if we don't do it, nobody does it. Russia doesn't do it. They don't begin to have any kind of capability internationally. In this particular case, they jumped in to our surprise, even though we want to claim credit for it, if, 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 if they had wanted to really mess with our heads, they would have waited for the Congress to act. That, they, this happens so fast. That's why, I, that's why I think that there's a side deal between Putin and the Syrians to say, give up your weapons. It's become, I'm, I can't be your defender anymore. And believe me, I'm all you got. So give them up. And guess what? I've got a lot, a lot more conventional weapons for you. So we are together with the Russians in not wanting chemical weapons around. We are in conflict with the Russians on whether we want Assad to prevail. 
that's where the difference is. And the Russians have have not only pulled the hat, at, you know, the rabbit out of the hat here and, and, and pushing everything aside, they're also going to strengthen Assad in the bargain. Well, we'll talk about that in a second. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Dr. Ralph Winnie, our international expert, will talk. We'll talk about some of the possibilities of the details of the Russian deal and can the UN handle this type of destruction or handling of the chemical weapons in Syria. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Wow, a little bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town. And I, I tell you, when I am back in town or when any of my friends are back in town or, heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu, the most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girl-flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again I might not get back home at all Lula's back in town Shelley's back room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We're going to continue talking about the Syrian question and the ever-confusing quagmire that faces the president and the world community regarding that situation. Joining us now from Washington, D.C., he is our foreign affairs expert. He is Dr. Ralph Winnie, vice president of the Eurasia Center. Ralph, how are you doing? Doing great. Glad to be with everyone this afternoon. Hey, Ralph, uh, real quick, Talk to us about the Russian interest in trying to strike this deal from your perspective. You're, you deal very closely with the Russian and Chinese government. We haven't heard a lot out of Beijing, but it seems that Vladimir Putin's 
got some agenda that he's pushing and has got the upper hand in this situation. Well, I agree. I certainly, um, as we've discussed previously on the show, uh, Syria is a very strong ally of Russia. Uh, the Russians recognize Syria as one of their strong allies in the Middle East. Um, they have lost influence in many of the other countries, including uh, Libya, and uh, are really working hard to gain the upper hand um, in order to keep Bashir uh, uh, Assad in, in power. I think what the Russian uh, government has called for is uh, for Assad to agree on placing chemical weapons under international control, um, support the destruction of these weapons, and also join the Treaty on Prohibition of Chemical Weapons. This can actually be accomplished to make Russia look like a uh, proactive global superpower that uh, can bring the parties together to end this conflict. So it's certainly in Russia's interest to uh, look like a uh, proactive global power that is in the respect of, of the West. Uh, certainly, uh, it will allow the Russian state will uh, will event uh, more uh, bloodshed. However, you've got the Syrian uh, rebels that are opposed to this arrangement that are calling on the U.S. Uh, international uh, well, Ralph, Ralph, Winnie, we yes? lost we lost Ralph Winnie. Um, Little technical problem with Ralph Winnie's phone connection. Ralph, if you hear us, call back in, please. Um, going back to the issue of, of, of the Russian interest, I want to also look at the UN's involvement in this. You've got a, uh, you, you've got the Secretary General who's now canceled the uh, uh, Security Council meeting. You've got a situation where uh, everybody's still trying to evaluate this Russian deal. Does the UN, in fact, have the capability to handle? This type of mission, Alan Moore? Sure. Um, what, all you're looking, remember what we're talking about in terms of handling. One, we're trying to get a Security Council resolution. We tried that before, and the Russians and the Chinese said, no, they have veto power, so we don't get a, a Security Council resolution. Now, this might be the key. It'll be a modified resolution that will somehow tie Syria behavior into doing something with their weapons. In terms of an international force to manage them, that's kind of complicated. Um, I'm no expert there, but it'll be an inter it will have to be some kind of an international force going into a country where a civil war is raging. So there's a whole host of security issues. But the key is if the Syrians are willing and ready to identify where this stuff is, and we're talking not just about chemicals that are in canisters ready to be launched, but raw materials that can be mixed to make more and Syria has both. So all of that has to be sorted out and identified and some kind of security. But, yeah, we can do that, especially if the ultimate plan is to allow all this stuff to be destroyed. Ralph Winnie's back with us again. Ralph Winnie, I want to pose a question to you. Can, can the U.N. handle this mission, or is this a little too much? Uh, I think the U.N. is going to have to handle it if, if they want to bring closure to the situation in, in Syria. Um, you're going to have to get the international regulatory agency involved. You're going to have to um, have Russia work with an international body um, to secure these weapons. Uh, but it's going to take a lot of time, and it's going to take a lot of support from other nations to bring this on board. And hopefully the U.S. will 
bring the Syrian rebels around to supporting this proposal. Yeah, but Ralph, when when we look at going off of Alan's comments as far as can the UN handle this, even getting a a UN UN bank backed sanction or resolution moving forward is still going to be a huge lift, knowing that the Russians and the Chinese, if they don't like a a period being placed somewhere, will veto the whole thing, and we're back at square one. How do we avoid that? Well, I think you're correct, um, but certainly China, Iran are behind uh, Russia's proposal, so I think they could draft a resolution that could could bring everyone together, um, but it, w- it will take time. Certainly there are sticking points. Um, the question is, do people trust Russia to do the right thing? What's going to happen when they get get a hold of the weapons? Um, some people might theorize that the Russians will just uh, send them back into Syria at some point when when all this has died down. So there's a lot of mistrust among the West towards Russia. Um, but certainly, Alan, I think Alan Moore, you're you're shaking your head. No, you know we're not going to turn this over to the Russians to manage all of these weapons. That's why that's the, the words international force means international. We're force. talking a bunch of where, blue helmets. Where everybody involved, all the major nations of the UN are going to be paying for this and are going to be being very certain that the outcome that that is desired occurs. And the Russians would have a huge interest in making sure that the Russians don't want chemical weapons floating around the world, and they sure don't want to be the protector of a, of a, of a guy who's shown a willingness to use them or, or having a, 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 a regime that's willing to use them. Um, I, and and they, were, they were being isolated in that regard. I think the real question is the Syrians, what's in it for them? Why have they agreed to this in 24 hours? And it comes back to my earlier comment that the Russians have, are, are making it worth their while, or strengthening strengthening them in other ways, so they can give them up. Remember, just last week, Assad was still denying that he even had chemical weapons, much less using them. Congressman Al, though, with everything going on, with now the added focus going on to UN action versus U.S. action, did in fact the president or Congress put the cart before the horse? Should we have possibly waited for? some sort of definitive international action to get behind it before drawing the red line in the sand? We'd be waiting until Christmas uh, 2052 uh, if, uh, if we tried that. And I, and I don't agree with the fact that we're turning it over to the UN. Uh, we, we and other major nations in the world are all going to continue to play major roles in this, and they may work through, but there's going to be guidance to the UN on uh, on how, what they do and how they do it, and that they are following a policy that we have some agreement on among our allies. Yeah, but Ralph, when he, it strikes me that the Russians would veto any legislation that would include any U.S. involvement in this. They were probably looking for some of the smaller members of the Security Council. Can the U.S. be involved in the monitoring even? of the situation without offending the Russians to veto any sort of proposal coming out of the Security Council? Well, I think that's going to be uh, um, that's going to be the million-dollar question. How does the U.S. stay relevant if Russia is going to be effect leading this international coalition? Because right now, um, allowing the Russians to gain enough for hand to look like uh, the country that is brokering into the crisis. And certainly they don't want the U.S. to get into that 
um, it, it's going to be important to carry to make sure that the U.S. stays relevant and is, is actively involved in Certainly, members of Congress view this uh, proposal as, as worthwhile if it can actually be implemented, and that's the key, if it can actually be implemented. Uh, we still don't know if that's the case. Denise Kraft, can Congress get behind any sort of resolution that would not include the U.S., but allow third parties in the Security Council and in the U.N. to monitor the situation? Or is Congress going to demand that there is some sort of involvement? Oh, absolutely. Congress is going to demand that the U.S. participates and that there is involvement. I mean, there's no way that Congress is going to say the United States stays out of it. Bob Hines, taking all this into consideration, this is a very, very delicate delicate place that we're in right now. Where can the U.S. stay relevant and continue to show that we are the true superpower in the world without having to be beholden to a Russian veto or a Chinese veto in New York? We're always, uh, the West has always uh, got a problem with the Chinese and the Russians. That's just reality. But the fact that uh, the, the Russians have, in effect, started this ball rolling, it seems to me that um, at least at the beginning, they're going to be willing to uh, see us playing a role. I mean, the thing that bothers me the most is that uh, unless we uh, can be sure, and I'm not sure how we can be sure, unless it, how the UN investigators, uh, the international uh, experts, can be sure that they know where all of it is kept and it's not being moved about to be hidden and or moved someplace where they can't get to it, like uh, Iran. Uh, you don't know. You know, there's going to be a lot of problems with, with dealing with this issue. And there's going to be a lot of, 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 of people who are involved and have and have full interest in the international body that's going to be working on this. There's going to be a lot of people who are going to have different who who want to achieve an appearance at least of we've got the weapons and we've gotten taken care of them, but they may not want to say we've destroyed them. We've got they're all out of the country. We've got control, etc. There's a big difference. Congressman, if we pursue this idea. That, uh, that the Russian foreign minister proposed, <clears throat> and I rather think that uh, we will. I think other countries in the world will want to do it as well. It moves this in a way that makes me think of the old Churchill quote, that it's better to jaw-jaw than to war-war. Uh, we're we're going to do a lot of talking, lots of problems, lots of disagreements, but if you're at a negotiating table, you are not... Uh, you're not... A, not We'll continue the war in Syria, you know, and whatever involvement is there, but we're not going to be uh, doing military strikes. But, Alan Moore, with the uncertainty in the Assad government and even his true control over both conventional and chemical weapons, <clears throat> excuse me, it seems like the only route to a political solution would demand regime change. It, 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 is there a balance that we can look at here? Uh, yeah, I, I, as I, 
I, I don't like to keep repeating myself, but I think that, that this particular proposal has the ironic impact of potentially taking the chemical weapons off the table as an issue while simultaneously strengthening Assad. And that all has to do with the Russians. We can't do this without the Russians. They're the only ones with any credibility with Syria. They're the only ones with real access to them, and they're the ones who are supplying them. So they would have a lot at stake here. It would be in, it, it would, it's clearly in Russia's interest to make this work on the chemical weapons side, and, and, and whatever else they do to prop up Assad is between them and Assad. So they, they, we absolutely need them to help make this happen, along with a, a large international group of experts but, with security support but and Alan, so on. But, Alan, the Russians are not going to demand Assad step aside. No, no that's my point. Right. Okay. No, they, they want Assad to stay they want to support Assad. They want to get the chemical weapons out of the picture. And that's the whole sort of the, the intriguing beauty from their standpoint of this whole deal. We'll get rid of the chemical weapons. We'll help make sure an international force, with or without Americans directly involved on the ground, it doesn't matter that much, gets rid of the chemical weapons to the best of our ability. At the same time, we're going we're gonna to be locked at the hip with Assad on other issues and in his civil war. But, but Ralph Winnie, this brings up the question of there are several legislators and several in the administration that believe that we should be uh, supplying and supporting the Free Syrian Army. If we strike this deal with the Russians, part of the situation is going to be, or do you foresee part of the deal, being that we don't get involved with the Free Syrian Army. Well, right. At, at this point, the U.S. has sought a political settlement that would ease Assad out of power and vowed to provide some lethal aid to the rebels, but so far it has, has done very little. And you've got more than 100,000 people that have died as a result of the fighting. The chemical weapons attacks, unfortunately, have uh, accounted for only 2% of the deaths in Syria. So, um, how, unless you actually arm the rebels, or find a way to to get to ease Assad out of power or make it severely difficult for him to kill more people uh, in his own country, it's really going to be for naught. So the, the key is how do, you, how do you balance that? Certainly the issue with the chemical weapons now it may be off the table, but it doesn't deal with the hard question of the, of the fact that more than 100,000 people have died um, as a result of, of the fighting in, in Syria. So members of Congress have to have a, a serious uh, talk about how are they going to continue to aid the aid the rebels or are they going to try and uh, support us, indirectly support Assad? And also, what about the hard I don't understand yeah. why that would keep us from uh, doing whatever we want. If Alan is correct, that the Soviets are going to be sending in help. I don't know where they stand to criticize us if we decide to help our side. But again, you're talking logic. When have we ever seen logic come out of a Putin administration in Russia, though? Putin, Putin has no ability to stop us from our very marginal support of the rebels, most of it more promised than actually delivered on. The Russians, on the other hand, have direct pipelines into Syria. They 
their only naval base outside of Russia happens in, to be in, in Syria. Um, and, and they've got airfields they can, that they can use that they don't want to have see destroyed by uh, uh, American strikes. They're going to support Assad. We're going to support the rebels in our mishmash, unclear way, because the rebels are a whole bunch of, uh, of, of groups, some of which uh, hate each other. Um, but we might be able to get chemical weapons out of there. We, we've got to be realistic here about what, what it is that we're, what this is all about, what we're trying to achieve. And if you're President Obama, remember this about him. He does not want a long-term entanglement anywhere. He was elected to get us out of long-term entanglements. One of the reasons he has put so much emphasis on how this was a shot across the bow, uh, precision strikes, leading even to Kerry saying, strangely enough, it will be an unbelievably small set of military strikes. Not, not particularly helpful, but uh, forcing the president to say uh, yesterday in an interview, we don't do pinpricks. We just do unbelievably small pricks, if you will. Um, but, but, but the whole idea, and, you, and it's important to understand how reluctant the president is throughout. He does not want an entanglement. He wants to be sure that whatever we do, almost anywhere, is quick. That's why he loves drones. He's not, he's not unwilling to kill. He's unwilling to get us in something he doesn't want our hands dirty. A big no. It's we're, our hands are plenty dirty with drones. He doesn't want us in a long-term entanglement where we have to put people in harm's way. And he will go to great lengths to Carl, avoid that. Carl Tubin. One important thing to remember: if this is successful, and I hope it is, um, this will this will uh, take away the, the fear that if Assad falls apart that these chemical weapons would be distributed among people who are our enemies. Uh, and, they, and the whole world shares that objective, including including the Russians. But, how, but, but Bob Hines, we've got right now the backing, even previous, you know, understanding the fact that we did not hear about this Russian deal until the past 72 hours, but even prior to this, there's still almost an expectation of, our, of some of our allies in the Middle East, that one regime change should come about, and they're putting pressure on 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 the president to say you've got to act militarily in this. This is the only language that Assad understands. How, in fact, do we balance that in keeping our allies behind us, but allowing Assad to continue to rain terror on Shiite Muslims? Well, fact of the matter is. The uh, many of our friends in the Middle East are backing some of the uh, Free Syrian Army. No, they're backing some of the uh, some of the more crazy and more exotic, uh, you know, professional fighters. In effect, if you Islamists in there, who are attacking in some respect, attacking these this the uh, Syrian Free Army. They are not friends of the. They want to have an Islamic state, Shia law. Yeah, that's what this. That's what these Saudis want. They want that. They don't want. They don't want a democratic society there. They want a Shiite law operation. They've been. They. They've been saying that quietly, but that's what they want, and that's what they've been financing, and they're still doing it. They're going to continue to do it. Let's assume that the chemical weapons disappear. The fact of the matter is, Assad's still going to be in power, and there's going to be the Free Sop, uh, uh, Syrian Army, which is made up of fundamentally the 
the local people who want to have some freedom in the country and the uh, uh, the Islamists who have joined them to attack uh, to attack and get rid of Bashar, but they want to put in a Shia Islamic government, and that's what they're after. Ralph Winnie, do you foresee in the uh, General Assembly and in the Security Council any of the Arab League members that might be supportive of American military action getting behind the Russian deal? Um, I I don't think the members of the Arab League were supportive of any kind of military strike in Syria. They wanted a political settlement. So certainly the Russian proposal is something that they would uh, be behind at this point. Uh, and the key is to um, bring the Syrian opposition on board with it. Uh, but that's going to be a major challenge at this point. And uh, if Russia is able to broker this deal, they will have come out ahead in the long run. Ralph, uh, last question to you for this segment. Does Putin expect this to make him, to give him the credibility and the spotlight in the world stage to say, hey, we're the superpower? Uh, certainly. Uh, I think he's, uh, he's the guy that... Uh, Definitely wants to wants to be a, a leader in the global community. Um, at, up to this point, uh, everyone was trying to find a way to, to see about bringing Russia on board, help them stay safe. But this time, Russia has taken the lead, and they're offering a diplomatic uh, solution to this conflict that's brought Iran, uh, China, and the Syrian government on board. The only issue now is what about the hardliners in the Assad government? How are they going to react to this? And and the Russians bring them on board. Very good. Ralph, thanks for joining us on this segment. We're going to take a break. When we come back, uh, we're going to continue the Syrian discussion. We're going to talk about what's the end game. How do we come out of this with any sort of solid backing of the global or the global international community? This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in three minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor. Hey, you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelley's Backroom that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Highland Sky scotches blended, single malt, anything you want port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays.
one more time. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, we're going to continue the discussion of the ever changing situation hey. in in Syria. Uh, joining us from New Orleans, Denise Krep. Joining me here in studio is Al Swift, Bob Hines, Alan Moore, and Carl Tubin. Hey, um, talking about Syria again. When Alan Moore, let me start with you. When we when we look at uh, the delay in the Syrian vote, obviously we're going to be waiting to see what the specifics of the deal are. Uh, in, in your mind, Alan, what, are, what is going to get Congress to truly get 100% behind any deal coming out of Moscow? Well, remember, the deal won't come out of Moscow. The deal will come out of the United Nations. And they're working on that now. And the big, well, there are several sticking points. One is, how do we hold serious feet to the fire on anything that, that gets agreed to. And what the Russians are also saying is, look, we're, we can only be part of this deal if the U.S. is willing to renounce the use of force um, that would be hanging over the heads of Syria uh, with whom they're trying to, to get a deal. So how do, you, how do you get an agreement where Syria agrees but with the recognition that if they don't fulfill their end of the bargain, then all other options are on the table. What the Congress is likely to do is wait until, you know, days, week, who knows how long, a, and it shouldn't take that long for, a, for some UN language to come forward, um, but it could never come forward. That's always possible. But it, 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 there's a chance that we'll have some UN language within uh, a week or so. And then there can be a resolution from Congress that would link to the UN language that would say, we authorize the president to take appropriate action to, to reduce the risk of use of chemical weapons if the requirements under UN resolution, whatever it is, are not met by a, a date certain. So. I see a very, you know, a good possibility of a very conditioned authorization tied to the UN resolution. Denise Krep, uh John McCain today uh, told CBS News that basically he does not trust the the Russian proposal. That he expects 
in order for this to be even remotely plausible that the Assad regime should allow the monitors in there, quote-unquote, right away. Obviously, that's not reality, but do you for, what, time, what kind of time frame do you see, in your opinion, that would satisfy even some of the more hawkish members on the situation? Within a week. Within a week? Bob Hines, is, yes. that, is that plausible? I would think the very first, if once there's an, a general agreement, I think as soon as we can put, a, put the experts on the ground and have them go to the Syrian people and say, okay, take us to the, to the repositories of your weapons, the sooner the better. And I think if the longer that we wait, the more likely it is people to believe that they're hiding them and moving them around. But, but Congressman Al, you know, conventional thinking would say that, you know, in, in, the, in the two weeks we've been messing around, we, we touched on this a little bit last week, but in the two weeks we've been messing around with this situation, uh, Assad has been moving around his key strategic points all over the country in places we probably don't even know about, and I would venture to say probably part of his chemical stockpile. Is there any real way that we can show, particularly the, with the credibility of Assad, who as of 40, or as of 24 hours ago was telling CBS News' Charlie Rose, hey, we don't have chemical weapons? Well, I think you've got to remember that Putin, if we go into this, has got some, he will have a real credibility problem if he does not, uh, insist to the Syrians that they uh, that they do this, and it, it would seem to me that it's not that big a deal. They've they, they've got lots of weapons. If Alan is right, they're going to have more from Russia, conventional weapons, uh, and uh, they won't really need the chemical weapons. So, what's to their advantage to play games with this? Would it, would wouldn't it make sense, Alan Moore, that his advantage would be to? You know, he's got it in his arsenal right now. It's obviously part of his war plan. Doesn't he want to keep that as maybe his ace in the hole? If he could, he would. We know that. And, and there's a willingness to use it somewhere in the most senior levels of his government. There was a report just the other day that it might have been his brother who authorized the use of them. But, but I think what's happening here, and Al touches on it, is this is about the Russians now. Once they jump in here and buy in, and and come to a separate, if you will, bilateral agreement with Syria. We will do this for you, but you have got to do that for us. The, 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 the Russians look like heroes, and from Assad's standpoint, he is strengthened, strengthened, strengthened in his, in his fight to retain power. So for him, or for, sort of for the Russians and the, and, and the Syrians, it's kind of a win-win. Um, the rest of us are willing to take that deal just to get rid of the chemical weapons. We, the rest of the world has not shown a willingness other than some modest uh, arms supplies to the so-called rebels, the ever-increasing number of groups of rebels, to, uh, to help. We can still do that, but, but it is in Russia's interest to make this thing work, and it is in Syria's interest to keep Russia happy. Bob Hines. I think, Alan, this hit something that's very important to remind ourselves of. This is now Russia's game, so to speak. They are, uh, they'll get their Syrian uh, friends to their, uh, be agreeable, but they, in many respects, will be seen as responsible for being, to be 
monitored not the international operations, but what are the Syrians doing that, you know, we wonder, you know, where's this, where's that, where's the other thing we're looking for? It's going to be, it's going to be a situation where people are going to, you know, be looking to the Russians to keep the Syrians honest. And if they don't, then it's going to be a problem for Putin, not for, not for Assad. Yeah, but, but as, as, as late as this afternoon, uh, former uh, State Department Intelligence Bureau Chief uh, Toby Gotti uh, was quoted in Politico saying that uh, the Russians saw this opening. They took it, they took it as a way to tie Gulliver down, Gulliver being us. There's a lot of skepticism, even with Susan Rice. Uh, saying that there's there's a lot of skepticism coming out of the National Security Council, but is is the pressure on the National Security Council to convince Obama that this is a quote unquote deal from hell, as uh, Toby Gotti put it in the political article? It's, 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 it's too late. The deal's already on the table, and they they, they can't get away with it. You, you can't back away from this now. Denise Krep, do you see that there's a back door to this for us? Not at this point, no. So, Alan Moore, we look at we look at the end game. I'm sorry, what did Denise say? Not now. There's no. Do you agree with Denise that there's no back door in this? We've got to walk through it. Well, we've walked. We're 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 in the process of walking through it. We're still trying to define it. We have we 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 want to be sure. You know, it's the old trust but verify, which is our our watchword since Ronald Reagan with the Russians. It is in Russia's interest to make this deal work. We can believe that, we can accept that, but we also want to verify that uh, over, over the course of time and find uh, some common language. We have given up providing aggressive support to the rebels anyway, so if Assad prevails as he has been for two years, that's not a huge surprise, and if we can get rid of a major source of chemical weapons and uh, and the makings of more that'll be a that, that'll be a a major victory for us under these circumstances more than we might have gotten uh 48 or 72 hours ago well besides now besides it it gets us it gets rid of the red line problem for us <clears throat> and i think that just just talking domestic politics here i think the administration should be absolutely gleeful that they got a way out of that dead end that they built for themselves. But, but this brings up a bigger question, though, is it, it took Russia to propose this deal. Was there any opportunity for the U.S. government and the Obama administration to propose this same deal to the U.N. two weeks ago and had us lead the charge? No. Why, Alan Moore? Syria, Syria had to buy in. There is one country in the world that could get Syria's buy-in and could cut a deal that would make it in Syria's interest, and that was Russia. But e even even if we had said, look, we'll stay out of it, but just let the international community lock down, are we that committed to, to regime change? Well, it's not about being committed to regime change. We were trying to get out of the red line problem and get rid of these chemical weapons. We, we, we've been backing away from the regime change thing for two years. So... So this has been all about the chemical weapons. We had our hands tied. Russia had some credibility and some heft, and they've made it to, in, into Syria's interest 
to go along. Congressman Al. It would be very interesting to go back to our archives uh, on, on the blog area and listen to last week's program and listen to all the things we were wrestling with as to how we didn't look like idiots and uh, how we could, you know, cauterize this problem, which we had largely created for ourselves. If if you go back and hear all of that again, and then they say, this proposal is there, you say, that's the answer. We couldn't find it last week, but we could find it now. Carl Tubman. The other thing to remember is... that this idea came from John Kerry leaving the G20 last Saturday. So, and, and then all of a sudden the Russian minister, foreign minister calls him, and talks to him, and then, you know, Putin gets involved. Now, <clears throat> whether, whether John mentioned to the president that, this, that he was going to say this or not, who knows? It wasn't John's proposal. It was just an, he was just answering a question, saying, "Well, yeah, if they'll give up everything up, it's okay." Yeah, but that's that kind of got the ball rolling. Yeah. Right. Well, okay, John, yeah. Alan Moore. Yeah, let's also remember that that apparently for some time, according to some reports, time going back over a year, there have been some bilateral conversations involving the U.S., the Russians, and others. Hey, what are the chances of? figuring out how to tie down and eliminate these chemical weapons. Could we get some international inspectors in there? Can we take that stuff off the table? So it, it, it is, and supposedly there was some side conversations during the G20. So it didn't start with John Kerry. It didn't necessarily start with conversations in the G20. But it also didn't have a specific proposal that the, that, that, that the Syrians would buy into. I think the notion was... This is what we need. How can we get the UN to move forward on that? Well, the Syrians would never buy it. The Syrians are buying in now in 24 hours and 48 hours. So there's clearly something in it for them. We've told them, we're not going to do that much to you. We've given them advanced warning. We've talked about how unbelievably small this is all going to be. We've given them a chance to move stuff around. We would have bombed them. We would have thumped our chests. We would have stayed away. They would have gone on about their business and said, gee, we better not use those chemical weapons. That's what we all thought was going to happen. It didn't happen. Syrians have now said, we'll get rid of those chemical weapons, even before a congressional vote, which might well have gone negative. So it just stands to reason that this is an interesting arrangement, fascinating arrangement, and someday we'll get the whole story um, between the Russians and the Syrians. But I don't think it just started on on Friday, although it may well have been triggered with somebody like, whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute. We didn't it think just, about this. It happened so fast that that it's hard to believe. But it, that but it seems like it, that the Obama administration's in a constant state of accidental diplomacy, as one political article put it. It literally is. They're just sitting there going, oh, 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 that's a good idea. I got a great idea. And they're following through on this. This does not demonstrate the global leadership that everybody looks to the U.S. for. Congressman now? Screw global leadership. <laughs> I, I think what we what what it, it was after all our Secretary of State who proposed it, no matter how offhanded it was. <laughs> and uh, the Russians said, "Hey, that's a good idea that you had that you had," uh, and. 
is Putin going to get some uh, some credit out of this? You bet. But I don't see this as being such a, a, a terrible minus for us either. But but Denise Krepp, when it comes to the global community, barring Al's very strong words of screw the global community and global leadership, POTUS still has another problem. He's still got to maintain his stature as commander-in-chief. Has, has this taken away his his stature in the eyes of some of the military of, hey, maybe this isn't the commander-in-chief we really need? Absolutely not. I'd say that this is the one that we do want somebody to be able to, well, somebody can pivot and adjust to different circumstances. A lot of it goes back to what Alan was talking about a few minutes ago. Circumstances have changed. And we're not, I mean, this isn't a chess game of us versus the Syrians. This is a bigger game that involves a lot more players that, you know, and each of these players are going to take certain steps, and our reaction um, is going to have to be calculated on the multiple steps, not just one step coming out of the Syrians. So, you know, I I think the military will support uh, this change, and, and I think that in the long term, this is going to be remembered as the United States initiative that was, um, led by the international community, not something that the Russians took over and then could, you know, shout with triumph that they came up with it. Bob Hines, I think on that last that last comment of uh, of our colleague in New Orleans is what I was thinking about. In the long run, the fact that the United States had put the, their warships off the coast and said, we're going to bomb the facilities we want to bomb, and we're prepared. I think uh, congressional votes were coming. I think the Senate would have approved it. The House, you're not clear yet, but I think eventually they would have. The reality was that the Russians probably said, in effect, to themselves and to their Syrian friends, look, you know, you better let us negotiate, get rid of those weapons, and uh, then... Which the, you don't the, really need anyway. Which you don't need anyway, and the United States is not going to start fight, shooting rockets at you, which you really, and we really don't want to have happen. So you got to give the president credit. I mean, it's 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 been an unusual staggering forward in trying, you know, getting to where to try to go, you know, on a difficult situation. But it is true that the, that the United States... Was if had they not had they not stood where they were about bombing some facilities in Syria, we would probably not have had the Russians' motivation to do what they did. Carl Tuvin. I go back to my my opening statement on the program, which is the fact that the president <laughs> and Putin had dinner. It was a long dinner. No one knows what came out of that dinner. And we won't know until history is written whether that was part of this whole thing. The two of them got together and said, you know, we've got to, we've got to tame this guy. We've got to do something. We've got to get rid of these weapons. We both agree on that. We've been talking about this, etc. Let's do it this way. And then all of a sudden it, it's, it unravels. Not unravels, but it goes gets it plays out. Alan Moore. Yeah, I'm still I'm still wrestling with this notion that our threats to shoot were so key because we kept 
diminishing what it was we were going to shoot, how much we were going to shoot, when we were going to shoot, how many targets there were going to be. We backed and backed and backed away from that, and we were waiting to see what the Congress would say about that. So the Congress was was maybe going to move towards saying yes, but it was increasingly looking to me like they were going to say no. I continue to believe that, having said that, the Russians hated being in the position at the G20, at the UN, and everywhere else, being the defender, the sole meaningful defender of the guy who almost certainly ordered up chemical weapons that killed hundreds of kids, hundreds of others, and that that was beginning to be an untenable position for them. It was not clear that we were going to attack, and it wasn't clear that if we did attack that it was going to amount to much. So I see Putin feeling increasingly isolated in, in, in the world community of, of defending this stuff and finding a way to have his cake and eat it too. To, to pull down the chemical weapons and strengthen Assad in the in the process. Denise Krebs, obviously there's there's some hope with the other big items on the agenda for Congress. Obviously, the budget's coming up. You've got the debt ceiling debate coming up, as well as farm bills and other key points of legislation. Is 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 the hope that this Russian deal could be enough to take Congress? eye off that ball and put it back into the budget and the fiscal crisis? It has to. I mean, and otherwise the government's not going to be in business come October 1st. I mean, regardless of what happens in Syria, we bomb them, we don't bomb them, whatever happens, we have to have a functioning government come October 1st, and the only way that happens is if we have a continuing resolution. Alan Moore. Can I just toss in something here? You know, occasionally during the show, we'll get messages. You yes. get stuff. We yep. get stuff. And I got a. I received a text from a friend of the show who likes to pay attention, and I and I wanted to call out that particular message because uh, it it said this: Go Al, screw global leadership. <laughs> so there was a. An, a, a vote of affirmation for our very own Al. Wow, Congressman Al setting new formulation yeah. policy standards. A foreign Screw policy blood. expert himself. Wow, I got to tell you something. That 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 is amazing. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to go open forum. We're going to talk about a couple of other things, including, in case you didn't know, it's primary day up in New York City. And that is going to turn into a major, major crap show, uh, as well as some other items going around uh, the Beltway. So we're going to take our eye off Syria for just a second. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, 
Shelly's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelly's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelly's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelly's Backroom, go to www.shellysbackroom.com slash private dash party. Shelly's Backroom, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also a place for private parties. Capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. Hey, uh, in case you didn't notice, because everything is all things Syria right now in the news cycle, uh, there's a bunch of other political news coming out of uh, the Beltway and, and even uh, outside the confines of Washington, D.C. Number one is today, it's Tuesday, that means there's a primary somewhere. It's primary day in New York City. And in the ever interesting Carlos Danger story, uh, Anthony Weiner still has the misguided, kind, almost idiotic conception that he might be the Democratic nominee for mayor. However, that being said, somebody asked me the question the other day, and it's a good topic, is why should we be concerned about the New York City election? Why do we care if people elect Anthony Weiner or uh, former Governor Spitzer as their controller? Uh, Denise Crap, I'm going to start with you. Why should we care about the New York City election? Because what happens in New York impacts everybody else in the country. I mean, there are powerhouse on the financial side. There are powerhouse with the development of new policies. Um, you know, what they do there can ripple into other places. So yes, we should absolutely be concerned about you know who becomes the new mayor and what the new mayor's priorities are. Bob Hines, you agree? Partially, yes. Partially, yes. I, you know, New York is uh, Gotham. It is the big city. It is the, uh, in many respects, it is uh, a, a weather vane, weather vane for sure. Um, but it isn't. It, you know, if New York City does something really stupid, which they have done in the past, they recover, and the country doesn't go the worst forward. But it's important to understand. You know, uh, it gives you a good feel for where. The public view is, where, you know, obviously New York is a democratic liberal city, um, but they've elect they've elected a Republican now five times yes, as mayor. Yeah, exactly, and it would it would, so it shows you that uh, you know the the reality is it's important to watch New York. Just like look at we're, we're all looking at Detroit these days, 
the reality is there are some things that are interesting and important in, in any election that is a major election like that. But it's does, it doesn't mean anything hugely. But it's important to know whether, where the people are going and what they're thinking. Alan Moore, looking at the race in New York, uh, it, it, it appears right now sort of a, a major catastrophe happening that the New York City electorate is probably going to elect a Democratic mayor for the first time now in over 20 years. Uh, should, should the rest of America look at that as maybe, as Bob put it, a weather vane of where the country might go? Or is, you, is New York so unique into itself that what happens in New York stays in New York? Well, um, I don't see it as a weather, weather vane. I think it was really fascinating that for five straight times a Republican um, was was elected. Bloomberg's an oddball Republican. Giuliani was a bit of a strange Republican, but they become national figures because New York is such a uh, a, a place that, that everybody is aware of. The, but Republicans are outnumbered, I think, five to one in registration. It it shows that people aren't slaves to party when they come to to vote for for a mayor. We're, we don't know yet whether there will be a runoff. My hunch is there will be a runoff, but it's possible that Bill de Blasio, who's in the lead, he could creep, he could, over, he could creep, over, he could creep over the 40. The 40 percent is all he needs in order to avoid a runoff. And he's, he's, he's right around that number. So we'll see. Um, and, uh, but I, I'm not, you know, I don't write off the possibility of, of a Republican having no chance. The, the likely Republican candidate, we've paid no attention to that, is, is a former head of of the MTA in New York, who did a great job of cleaning up the MTA after, well, and after after uh, after Sandy responding very well. So it's sort of the competence argument against the kind of fascinating, weird controversies surrounding whoever the Democratic candidate will be. It won't be Weiner. I think we're, we 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 can all come to an agreement on that, except for Anthony. Um, and uh, and then he'll disappear. And I, and if you haven't watched it, you might be fascinated by the, video. the obvious. No, well, the weird exchange between him last night with Lawrence O'Donnell on the, on NBC, MSNBC, where where O'Donnell just beat up on him for 20 minutes, almost making one feel sorry for Weiner, which is really saying something. <laughs> but his, the heart of his argument being, "What's the matter with you?" That was his first question, and Weiner's like. I don't get the question, and, right. and then it just went on, and it was just a—it was really an ugly, messy thing, and I, I don't—I don't think that, that O'Donnell helped himself. And he's crap. Uh, you know, I, it, it appears that Anthony Weiner doesn't stand a chance in getting the Democratic nomination. Spitzer has a little bit of a better chance, but not much, against the uh, Manhattan Borough President uh, for Comptroller of the City of New York. But when you look at that race, Denise. The one frontrunner that was there for over a year, uh, Christine Quinn, how did Christine Quinn lose out in that frontrunner leadership to a de Blasio? That one I don't know. I, I mean, sometimes you just kind of shake your head and go, oh, my, I, I don't well, understand New York sometimes. Carl Tubin? Well, <clears throat> one of the things that, uh, that happened is that she was the uh, head of the city council when the vote came to give uh, Bloomberg another four years to be able to get in the race for the for his his uh, third term, and uh, a lot of people have reacted against that, and that could have been part of it. But you would have thought that 
you know, somebody who is an open lesbian, has an open relationship, I, I believe they're either about to or, or have already gotten married. Uh, and the, the gay vote in New York City is just tremendous. She can't garner that for some reason. Alan Moore? Well, hopefully people will have a <laughs> gays and straights have an open mind and can say, mm-hmm. I'm going to vote for a person on the merits. Carl is exactly right. It's turned into a massive problem for her that she was Bloomberg's active partner in changing the term limits law of, of, of New York City to allow for a third term. Seemed like a good idea at the time. And it, she just gets hammered for it over and over again because Bloomberg is now unpopular. So she's she's laboring under that. She's she's not the you know n- nobody has ha- has shown a, a real warmth here in this uh, race, ex- with the possible exception of De Blasio, which I think has has helped him. And he's a he's he's in a multiracial marriage. That seems he seems to have figured out a way to make. That those facts put them front and center, and that seems to have, have, have helped him. But he's also a very articulate guy with a with a with a strong history political history in New York. So you know, but 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 the African American candidate Thompson, he's also a guy of significant accomplishment who almost beat Bloomberg four years ago. So Correct. they've got an interesting group of credible candidates. Um, but Quinn peaked early and then just sort of been on a, on a, on a decline. By the I way, think it's the Bloomberg thing. By the way, it. our friends at Politico are uh, are reporting breaking news. Uh, the State Department has announced that Secretary of State John Kerry will, in fact, travel to Geneva on Thursday to meet with uh, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov uh, to obviously talk about the Syrian question. That's big news coming out of Foggy Bottom right now, Bob Hines. That's significant development. It's very significant. What that says is, is that the, is that Russians and the United States are trying to work this out together, and that's a plus. Denise Krep, could this be the sign of better relationships between between Washington and Moscow? Absolutely. I mean, if this does nothing more than get, getting people to sit down and talk, that's the first step. And we've had a very rocky relationship with them over the past couple of months. And again. Anything that we can do together will help improve that relationship. Big plus, obviously. Big plus, obviously. Uh, we'll obviously monitor that. Obviously, be a discussion for next week. Uh, but the other big news coming out of the political front is the governor's race in Virginia continues to be just a, a, a mud wrestling match at this point. Uh, the, the, the latest developments are and. Alan, well, you've been following that very closely. Correct me if I'm wrong. It's going to be my story. Ken, Ken Cuccinelli announced today that he will be donating $18,000 to a charity in lieu of the money that he took from the questionable business transactions that he was involved in. Now, that has got Terry McAuliffe spun up something fierce. Alan Moore, first of all, does this help Ken Cuccinelli in his bloody nose on this situation? Well, it 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 can't hurt him other than hurt his pocketbook. He's not a wealthy guy. And right. He's, he's hesitated because he doesn't have. He's got a bunch of kids and not a lot of money. And 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 what he, the gifts he took from uh, from <laughs> from from this the, the head of Star Scientific, the guy that's the source of the governor's and the governor's wife's problems, um, were. Gifts of food, lodging, and transportation. 
So you report them. You, a la Bob Menendez. Well, right. And, you, and you, attach, you attach a value to them, but you can't really repay them per se. So finally, because he was getting hammered in these television ads over and over that are disgusting all of us who live in, in, uh, in the Washington, D.C. area and see them on TV constantly, he finally decided, all right, I have got to somehow try to tamp that down. $18,000 is the number. I'm going to give a personal check of $18,000 to charity. Did he get that money from Star Scientific? God help us. He may have had to borrow on a, you know, get a home equity loan or borrow, because again, I, I, I've never, I don't know what, uh, what his, uh, what his assets are. I just know that he's not a wealthy guy. So this was a hard decision. Perhaps as hard as Bob Menendez giving 60 grand or whatever it was to pay back some private flights down to have a good time in, in the uh, Dominican Republic. In, in the Dominican Republic, but, but this race continues to just disgust virtually everybody. They're, 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 Republicans are not happy. Democrats are not happy. There's a real question of what turnout will look like, and I'm guessing a lot of people will go into the voting booth and either write none of the above or will write in their own name or the name of a friend. Well, that brings up, that brings up yeah. a good question. Bob Hines, go ahead. You had a comment. No, my, oh. God, my comment, I couldn't agree more with Alan. But but it seems to me that especially with the party leadership up here, Debbie Wasserman Schultz on the Democratic side, Ryan's Priebus on the Republican side, and their respective committees, would have gotten involved and said, "Look, all we're doing is just killing ourselves." At some point, the bloodletting is going to stop. But there's no indication that the bloodletting is going to stop. In fact, indications are right now that we haven't even seen the worst of it. Can can the state of Virginia survive this type of just brutal politics, or are they ready to just say, enough, see enough? Well, I'm going to, uh, I, I was going to say the same, I was going to talk, but I'm knowing Alan what he's going to say, this is going to be my story, too. Well, oh, blew that one out of the water, didn't I? I just, won't we just use it right now? All right. My, my, my view is that, you know, for some reason, and I think I know a little, at least on the Republican side, I know why it happened, because we, we had a primary which meant only the most enthusiastic, crazy people go. We did, we did not have a primary. We had a convention, and a convention puts the craziest people you can possibly get into the, in the, in the fix. And you know, we have two candidates who I would suspect probably at least one-third of the entire electorate who will go to the polls in a few weeks for governorship, for the governors of, of um, you know, Virginia, right, are unhappy with both candidates, and uh, it's 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 so frustrating. I mean, to I think a whole lot of people that neither party has put up a candidate who you can say, by golly, this person is really the kind of a person we need at this in the Virginia. Con- when you consider that Virginia is the Virginia is the is the home of so many presidents, probably more presidents than any other state. And we are now about to we're about to elect a governor who probably almost a majority of the people would rather have anybody but the two of them. Did he describe does it surprise you that up till now we haven't seen a strong uh front runner from an independent run? 
Absolutely. Given the fiasco that's going on within both parties, this is a perfect time for a third-party candidate to come in and say, I'm so much better than either of you. Please vote for me. But, Alan, this does beg the question is, looking at what's happened here in in, uh, Virginia, looking at what happened in New York, uh, there's been more and more rumblings of possibly the the rise of the the third-party candidate. Uh, Bloomberg continues to be a name that they push around. Uh, libertarians talk about having relevancy now. Are, are we starting to see the possibility that we could go to a third-party legitimate uh, electorate right now? You know, I when I was working in the Senate in the uh, in the in the 1980s, people were distressed, and uh, this kind of distress shows up often regularly, but trying to run a candidacy as a third-party candidate takes an enormous amount of money, and you have to put a huge organization together, and most of the big names are people who are associated with one party or the other, um, or have fame for some other reason. I mean, Donald Trump sort of toyed with the idea, but people... See him as as more an entertainer, a buffoon. A, well, not a buffoon, although occasionally, but but more he's just an entertainer who's got a massive ego and and a and a narcissistic uh, t- set of tendencies. So finding a, and people talk about Bloomberg. He's a billionaire. He spent a hundred million dollars four years ago for the New York City mayoral race. So. You know, there's a few people like that, but it's hard to see somebody like that getting traction internationally. And and as far as Virginia, I don't. I mean, if you could find an ideal person to jump in, I don't know who that would be, and I don't know that they would have any any real shot. People, it's just really hard to generate momentum and publicity, and it all takes way more money than than people have or are willing to spend. Bob Hines, um, Bill Bowling, who is the um, Lieutenant Governor in uh, Virginia is a uh, is a very responsible and solid guy. Uh, because the Republicans chose to have a no primary but a convention, it was it was uh, con- the uh, the candidate became Mr. Cuccinelli, and Bowling had no chance because he was much more. While he's conservative, he is not beyond the fringe, uh, and uh, he looked at a uh, an independent. Candidacy. He he looked at the money the money problem. He looked at the organizational problem, and he said, "I can't do it." And you know, so we have these two these two candidates, neither one of whom uh, are the kind of people you would hope would be running for governor on either party. Alan Moore. Yeah, and thinking about these two guys, I am no fan of either one, as as I've certainly made clear. That doesn't mean that whoever prevails will be a lousy governor. That's the other weird thing about our system. So there can be guys you don't like who do a good job governing, and there are people you like who turn out to be not very good. Um, I wish we had a different two two different candidates to pick from. Um, we don't. We have what we have. One will get elected, um, and uh, and we'll learn to live with them. They they whoever whoever wins, they're coming into a state with a strong economy. Uh, with a with 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 low unemployment rate um, and uh, and not 
all the problems but it's also, that you have. But Alan Moore, it's also a state very susceptible to sequestration, budget cuts, with the amount of defense contracting, defense operations in Virginia, particularly in the Hampton Roads area but and the, the northern Virginia. that will come later. It'll come later, but also when you're affected by sequestration in a big way, it means you've got a massive base to build off of. And, and, and Virginia is a huge beneficiary of federal contracts. That doesn't mean you can take a, a hit of 5%, 10% without any pain, but it means you've got a big base left over. Yeah. Uh, Carl Tubin. Yeah, I, I think if, if, uh, if the Republicans lose in Virginia, this might be a time for the Republican Party of Virginia to, to look at itself and say, is the state convention what we want, or do we want an open primary where we have people who want to be governor, can come in and compete, and, 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 and win. Also, hopefully, because of this, this uh, scandal that's going on, that Virginia, like Maryland did after its scandal several years ago, Virginia will tighten up the election laws, which they refused to do, so that you can't have this kind of money thing going on and loans and all this other stuff. Well, Congressman now, and I would bet that the lieutenant governor, whose name I can't remember, Bowling. Bob, Bowling. Bob talked about it. <clears throat> I think if he were the candidate, uh, he would be, we would now be talking the likelihood of him being elected. I agree. And, and I think that when the Republicans, should the Democrat win, uh, I would not be at all surprised to see the Republicans uh, stumbling all over themselves, uh, forcing things into a primary rather than what uh, Cuccinelli essentially engineered, which was uh, which was a convention. Yeah. Uh, Alan Moore? I remember after the presidential election when some of us lamented the fact that it was Romney who lost rather than... Obama one winning. The, one of the... No, right, but it was, it was Romney who, who lost rather than one of the arch-conservatives who wanted the nomination because it allowed some of them to keep alive the narrative. Well, if we had nominated a true conservative, then we might have beaten Obama, which I don't happen to believe that the arch-conservatives who were trying to get the candidacy would have had any luck against President Obama. Now, this may be a case if Cuccinelli loses, and I don't think he's a horrible person. It's just that he is way out there on some issues, not all, but on some, and he's having trouble explaining himself for some of the positions he's taken in the past. No one can say he's not very, very conservative, and it may be that if he loses to this sleazeball McCollum, <laughs> that then people can say, are you happy now? You had your arch-conservative, and, and he yeah, how did that work to this guy. How did that work out for you? You have this guy with all these questionable ethical behaviors throughout his business life. So maybe next time we'll want to look to somebody more electable. I don't know. We'll see. Denise Krebs, the same thing can be said on the Democratic side. We've heard that many times coming out of the Democrats when they've lost key elections. Uh, is that sentiment still still true on your side of the party? Oh, absolutely. Elaborate? <laughs> Well, apparently not. Okay. Well, 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 well
short answers, but Jesus, that took it to the opposite extreme, much like the fringe. Uh, hey, the other big news that, that, that kind of popped up uh, on the radar screen over the past uh, uh, 24 to 48 hours is uh, something that dominated our conversations for a little bit, and that's uh, uh, America's favorite, uh, favorite senior ground model, George Zimmerman. George Zimmerman was arrested or was detained for questioning in Lake Mary, Florida, uh, after a an alleged domestic violence issue, apparently he and his wife are getting divorced. Uh, the the gun that he apparently used in the uh, in the unfortunate death of Trayvon Martin apparently is still in his custody and was apparently also involved, but he was not arrested for that. He still carries the license to carry that concealed. That being said, what is America's fixation still with George Zimmerman? Why is he still Making national news, Congressman. Well, because I think most Americans uh, kind of like the idea of uh, the what, what do you call it, the, the law. And, uh, no, the stand your ground law. Stand your ground law. I think it's an abysmal law, uh, and uh, it's it just you know the NRA is there again, and and some other people. The fact is that. Uh, if you if you've got that many guns running around that loosely, and you say it's okay to shoot somebody who you think uh, is going to hurt you, uh, it is just an invitation for murder. Call Tubin. There are a couple of things here. First of all, most uh, I think a lot of people in this country thought that the the, uh, the decision was wrong. Uh, I mean, it's a judicial system. They went through the whole system as well. Um, the other thing that's come out is that his wife, uh, you know, told an untruth when she was testifying um, uh, in the in court. Uh, this was a situation where she claims that they had permission to go into the house that they lived in to take out some things, and he did. And then he got into a, a, a fracas with his father, his former father-in-law. Well, anyway, a little piece of uh, political trivia out there. George Zimmerman uh, continues to be, uh, it just seems like he's constantly questioned by police, whether it's speeding in Texas or it's uh, being questioned for domestic violence in Lake Mary. This is like the third or fourth time he's had interaction with police since the verdict. So, uh, keep an eye on that, too. Hey, it's uh, 10 minutes till the end of the show, or 9 minutes till the end of the show. It's time for my favorite part of the show. Tell me a story where we talk about the latest gossip, the latest innuendo coming out of the Beltway and outside the Beltway. Uh, Bob Hines, tell me a story. Well, we've been talking about my story, and that is those the governorship race in Virginia is just a disaster. Well, short and sweet. Good and job. Short and sweet. Alan okay. Moore, same thing? No. No, a year ago uh, tomorrow... Uh, the uh, consulate in Benghazi was attacked. Um, we still don't have uh, all the answers we would like on what happened that day, and there were never any arrests. But the reason it, it occurred uh, one year ago tomorrow was because that was the anniversary of something that happened 12 years ago tomorrow, which was the attack on America, the 9-11 attacks that forced all of us who lived through them, wherever we were, some of us right here in Washington, D.C., where, of course, the Pentagon was attacked, I was working in the U.S. Senate, watched on television as as the first uh, Twin Tower burned, the second one was hit, 
and then we evacuated the, the Senate office buildings. Um, life in America has never been uh, the same. Uh, it's not necessarily as dramatically different as we thought it might be at that time, but anybody who goes through an airport understands, and anybody who reflects on what, what we're learning about what the NSA does in, in having access to telecommunications is reminded that uh, we might try to be the world sheriff, the world's, uh, the world's uh, policeman uh, reluctantly or whatever, but we have a lot of haters. And uh, unfortunately and sadly, whatever our intentions, there are many people who hate us and want to do harm to us and bless the fact that we can talk about this and remember it and, uh, and live on for the future and, and not worry every day that we can't even walk out of the yeah, house. I, I, I was going to end with that. And, and with that, I, I, we, we're getting short on time here. Uh, Denise, Congressman Al, Carl will give you, uh, tell me a story next week. But uh, one of the things I wanted to, or Congressman Al, real quick, I, I just, I, I want to have a credit at the end of this program. Coughing by Al Swift. There we go. That was because my martini went down the wrong class. There we go. There we go. Hey, um, as Alan pointed out, uh, tomorrow is, in fact, the 12th anniversary of the Al-Qaeda-led attacks on the U.S. and, and 9-11. Uh, thousands of people lost their lives unnecessarily in, in a just a gross act of violence against our country. Um we, we, we have a tendency of losing track on the significance of dates like this. Uh, yet, once in a while it pops back up. Everybody asks, where were you on that day? But instead of looking back on where were you that day, instead of looking back on, on what led up to it, take an opportunity tomorrow and just remember those who died. Go up to a go up to a, uh, a first responder, a policeman, a fireman, uh, an EMS official, and just just shake their hand and say thank you. They're the unsung heroes on the front line of what keeps us safe here in the United States. And the city of New York will never ever forget the people that literally gave their lives in service of keeping us all safe. So tomorrow on the anniversary, take a moment. Remember those who lost their lives, and just thank those who really put their lives on hold every day to keep us safe here in, in, in what is the greatest free democracy in the world. Here, 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 here. With that, uh, we're going to, we're going to end a little bit early as a moment of silence to remember 9/11 tomorrow. But with that, I want to thank Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Alan Moore, Carl Tubin, Denise. Thanks for joining us down in New Orleans. We will be back next week with special guest Chuck Bowser, former head of GAO, former Comptroller General. We're going to be talking some financial issues hopefully next week, uh, short of anything drastic happening. Uh, and then the following week, special guest will be former Secretary of Transportation Ray LaHood. So stay tuned. We've got two great guests coming up in the next two weeks. Folks, uh, again, thank a first responder. They'll appreciate it. This is this is Justin Russell, your moderator, live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob Hines. This is the place. Please come. This is the place to be. It is. Folks, uh, again, moment of silence for 9-11 and remembrance of 9-11. Have a great week. We'll see you next week this time. Bye-bye. <laughs>